0: OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund, Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Poffin. Let's please welcome Steve Tokart today, General Manager, General and Managing Partner at Cantilever Investors Fund LP as our investor for today. Welcome, Steve. It's a real pleasure and honor having you join us today.
1: Hey, same, JP. Good to be here.
0: Super excited today, Steve. I know I probably see this about every guest that I get the (laughs) opportunity to talk with, but today you kind of bring this whole different element to the investing side. And maybe that's just because on our show, we get to speak to a lot of different people all over the world But you kind of bring this really cool element of that biosciences. And I know this is a real tough space and it's a long game play. So I'm dying to dive in and learn a bit more about your background and talk about all the great things that you've accomplished throughout your time. And of course, the time you've been spending in the last few years working and operating in the early stage space. But maybe to to kick things off, uh, the way we like to kind of start things, turn it over to you. If you could share a little bit about your background all the way back to your University of Michigan, Michigan days. Um, your, your MBA, all the way up, all the great CEO jobs and the businesses you've built, and then a little bit about what you're doing today. And of course, one thing about you that nobody would know.
1: <laughs> well, interestingly, I'm not a bioscience, life science kind of guy. I, actually, my degree is in engineering physics. As the bioscience call, guys call me, I'm the hardware guy. You know, the guy used to pound metal. But, um, you know, I grew up in Chicago. I'm a Midwest person. And then you know I came to Michigan to go to school here. And the reason I ended up getting an engineering physics degree is not because I'm smart, but because ultimately I really saw in the 1980s what was starting to happen. I mean, when I started at at the college, I was carrying punch cards to the mainframe. Michigan had the biggest mainframe next to the University of Washington. We know what Gates did with that mainframe. But I was literally carrying punch cards to the mainframe. By the time I finished my senior design project, we were doing CAD CAM, we were literally taking the early CAD programs. You had to use a calculator to get things to work on the screen and making functional prototypes. And that's when I realized, you know, this whole business development, this whole product development regime, it was in a whole revolution. The convergence of events that were happening then were exciting. And, you know, by getting that degree, it gave me a tremendous amount of flexibility to do a lot of different things. So when I started at Lincoln Electric, you know, we reinvented the product line there. The president of the company then said he wanted to, you know, change every uh, every product the company had sold over the last, you know, 50 years within the next five years. I mean, think about it. Businesses were were taking five to 10 years to launch products, launch new business units. Today, if Starbucks doesn't have a new coffee cup and a new product line, they're out of business. And we got to enjoy the cusp of how that grew. But fast forward, and you know, I ended up working for Masco Corporation after that. And Masco was tracking, you know, fourteen billion dollars in sales, and I got to move into the project management side. But that's what really moved me toward business development, innovation development, working with you know Tech Scout up, and then moving into the finance side of life to kind of round things off. And Masco, at one point, we created an internally funded venture capital group called the Masco Innovation Grant where literally we'd have, you know, our operating companies petition that, and we created businesses inside the business. So few folks hear this, but I was what we would call an entrepreneur, the person inside the large corporation, fighting technologies, building business units around it. And we would literally recreate our operations when we launched these new core products, you know, for the divisions I worked with, and then across the platform, we had a plumbing products platform. We had a building products platform. Masco's Delta faucets, beer paints. At one point, it had a Milgard. There was a Masco Canada. There's a Masco Europe. It's a big company, but they go by the brands, not necessarily the corporate name. But um, as all folks, it was great to be there until it was time to leave, and that's when I started my first companies. And you know, when I was at Masco, we were finding great, great business opportunities. That Masco for rightful purposes had no business supporting. Like we found LED lighting in 2003 when Cree was just starting to come out. We saw the advent of 3D printing and what could happen there in rapid prototyping. And then we saw wireless and batteryless technology that could go into homes for different types of functionality. That was the precursor of Nest, which obviously everyone knows today as Ring and other things in your home. But, um, you know, Nest ultimately sold to, to Google for you know hundreds of millions of dollars. And so these are the things we were seeing. And at that same time, we all can all remember, you know, Techstars was starting to evolve, you know, 500 startups, things of that nature. So when I left and created our first companies, we looked a lot like Techstars uh, tech and 500 startups. But it was 2008. Not a great time to form out new companies. So we, get, we saw $4 million of soft committed capital vanish overnight, uh, even though we were tracking with the University of Dayton Research Institute and the great things they do there, and the University of Michigan, we had to hunker down, focus on one. And ultimately, you know, we, we had to you know, spin out the others and stop supporting them because we didn't have the financial resources at that time. So we, we, um, it, like all entrepreneurs will see is, you know, I love how Mike Tyson said it, you know, everyone has a plan, They you get punched in the nose. You will get punched in the nose (laughs) repeatedly. So, you know, we got our punch then and we focused on one company, which was energy efficient lighting. We launched with the first uh, solid state electronic lighting, which was inductive lighting. That's Tesla's genius. It's a great story if you ever read about it. Just a phenomenal design and what he did. It's also known as inductive fluorescent. Some of the crispest, clearest light you, you can produce. And then we moved to LED. And ultimately, we grew that company at about 10 million in sales. We had 50 employees. We had operations that we moved to Clarksdale, Mississippi, to take care of some of opportunity zones and help spur that community's development. And you um, know, I'm the guy who likes to build the plane. I'll, I'll I'll fly it while we're building it. But you know, I've always handed things off when it came down to the time of scaling it or you know running the operation day in and day out. So when it comes down to filling out I-9 forms and making sure everyone shows up to work and did we follow the white quality management system today? Um, I think you know that's where I start to unwind and others who are really good at that can, can you know take it to the next level. So we sold that company after raising about 14 and a half million to Usho America, which is part of an international lighting company, Ushio uh, of Japan. And we sold that for a valuation close to twenty-five million. Uh, When it was time to leave, I started what we've come to know as Cantilever, and I met another gentleman called Mark Smith in about two thousand fifteen. And you know, we started sharing these crazy ideas. But ultimately, the vision we have is to create an early-stage emerging technology enterprise. And I've kind of dubbed it a startup factory. And what we have now is within. My HQ, which Mark Smith has really spearheaded and put his heart and soul in. We have an innovation campus in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right by the University of Michigan, that has close to 80 companies in 200,000 square feet, three different buildings. There's a community center. In the community center, we host uh, investor forums like Michigan Angel Fund, Koretsu. We just hosted the Michigan Good Capital Networks monthly meeting. And then we try to bring a collaborative mindset around that. But MyHQ over the last six years has grown to the point where now we're creating what we call the MyHQ enterprise, where our vision is to create a number of these innovation campuses across the Midwest. So the second campus opened near the first in Ypsilanti, Well, we're gonna open our third, and then ultimately there's enough need to have space to come and work in, especially wet lab space. So imagine you're a biotech company, JP, and you just need a bench to work on to start your company and get it moving to the next direction. Stablex Biosciences, we spun out of Michigan Tech. We started with a bench at MyHQ, but if we couldn't find that bench at MyHQ, company doesn't exist, we can't get to the next level. Fast forward three years after we spun it out of the university, now we got 2000 square foot, all the instrumentation, seven full-time employees, and we still work within Michigan Tech, to make the nanoparticles, but use the the operations facility in Ann Arbor and bring the best of both elements together. So you'll see that story over and over and over of early stage companies being in this collaborative mindset. And it's not just a building that you rent, it's kind of like a retail outlet of early stage companies. So there's all of these companies around talking to each other, sharing ideas. Some of the companies form new companies, two analytical labs and another guy formed a cannabis testing company, you know, it made perfect sense that cannabis company is now in my HQ. But while Mark was working inside the buildings, and we were trying to grow the vision of many campuses across the Midwest, we were working outside the building. And that's when we created Cantilever Investors. And it's structured like a venture capital organization, but it really is a group of investors. And we had to start out small, to show people what we could do. So it was started as a micro fund size. We had 3 million in committed capital. We deployed a million in, in 22 companies. But our value proposition is that we're active investors. We're that smart money behind it. So for the select few, we come in in a big way. But I actually, even though I manage our, our fund, you know this investment group, our, my own money's in it. I insist that an entrepreneur, you need to put your own money in everything you do. So I'm an LP in the fund, I'm a GP in the fund, and then managing partner. And um, you know, within that, you know, I, we can serve as not only investors in the companies, but also operators in the companies. So if you look at our portfolio, we've invested in three Canadian companies, two in Ottawa and one in, in general Ontario. We don't just invest in Michigan or in, in the Midwest, There's a, a majority of our investments are there. But we invest across North America. And what does that do? It builds a national network of investors. We get like minded individuals. We can share diligence. We can double vet deals. But then, you know, for some of them, they're so good an opportunity. They don't need our help. They look like us. And we love to network with those groups. But what happens there is their investors co invest in what we're doing. And all of a sudden, you get this exponential increase. And the companies that earn their way through, meet their milestones, will get you know, the network of funding that, that ultimately helps them raise the capital they need. And then you know, there's a, a middle group we're on the board of directors, you know, we come help as advisors, we help them raise money. And then that group we go in big that, you know, but they have those companies we go in big have to have great teams that have no ego a platform where we can have multiple exits and then a huge, huge opportunity. I love people, how they say disruptive or, you know, game changing, but it's common sense to me of peptinovo can take existing chemotherapeutic drugs, put them in a platform delivery mechanism that tricks the cells. It looks like HDL, the cells need that to grow. Well, cancer cells are fast dividing. They grow very quickly. Healthy cells don't necessarily need the HDL. And so this selectively targets receptors that are on all cancer cells studied, primarily on cancer cells and not on nerves, not on healthy tissues. And then it goes inside the cell and delivers the chemotherapeutic drug. So we're taking existing proven materials, putting them in a targeted delivery mechanism, but also providing dose limiting side effects. So the holy grail is efficacy how can we improve patient survival well if they can get the dose they need or they can get a higher dose that's going to improve survival well that means get rid of the side effects and that means a healthier quality of life so we you know people say impact funds but i want to see benefit to people that we can all benefit from and so our fund comes in our group of investors comes in in big ways where we think we can help those companies and make a difference to getting a successful a company and commercialization to the market now when we help those companies you know we come in as talent so we have a group of advisors a national number of networks so you know our companies ultimately hire us as independent contractors to help run the companies or support them or we just got ways to bring in fractional talent and so this startup factory needs a place to work especially if you need wet lab space it needs capital, a group of investors who are smart money, and it needs talent, fractional talent that's the best talent you need when you need it, but not necessarily not. And you got to find that quickly. That's the vision we've created. That's the startup factory that we've been driving toward. And so far, you know, it seems to be moving along.
0: <laughs> I love it. It sounds like there's a lot of moving parts, and we're going to peel out some of those and chat to them. Uh, but before we do, one thing about you that nobody would know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, some of my Wisconsin folks won't like this, but we've had season tickets to the Chicago Bears since 1959. My dad got them when you know he was you know rambling and rousing around. They played at Wrigley Field then, and then ultimately they went to Soldier's Field in the remodel. And um, so yeah, I, I I know we still have the tickets. Um, we still go there, but think of that that's a lot of time now. <laughs> My dad got a plaque for 50 years of having Chicago Bears tickets to the day he died, it was one of his most cherished, uh, you know, pieces of memorabilia.
0: So it's yeah, yeah, that's that's incredible. Yeah, they're uh, especially how that team has gone uh, well, probably had more downs than they've had ups, but
1: uh, <laughs> per healing being a too. Bears fan, huh?
0: yeah, that's exactly. Uh, and,
1: and there's the biggest rivalry, I think, in, in football. Yeah, Ohio State Michigan's huge and the SEC contest, but the Packers Bears goes back to the 19 odds, right? You know, and uh, it's got a special little rivalry. So uh, we have a, a major um, family office, Alligator Holdings, a guy, Mark Smith. He's great. He's a big part of our, our investor group. And, you know, he's got season tickets for the Packers, but he will never. Give me tickets to the Packers Bears game and he'll never go to Packers Bears game. <laughs> we have a, a, a signed unspoken pack. We don't talk to each other during that game.
0: That's awesome. That's a great story. Uh to kind of go back a bit through your transition, I guess, from when you were working as an engineer hardware guy and and moving more into the the biospace, what was the what was the piece to kind of drew you into that like what got you excited about it because it is such a big space again it's a long play for anything and being an engineer uh software engineer or hardware engineer being a gadget guy it's, it's tough to to kind of say well maybe i should switch over to this space and like you said you kind of fell into it but maybe share a bit about that because i think that's pretty interesting
1: well so you know i've always been a business development person and i could help support the technical side uh what would help this is I think a few things, you know, first of all, when you look at early stage companies, biotech folks like the founders of Peptinovo and Stablex, Ren, Holman, Peptinovo, Joachim Yap, and then another founding member, Nazmia yepichi they know the technical stuff extremely well. And when I was working within Masco, for instance, and you know, I'd be the technical lead and the entrepreneurial lead on projects, that's a problem. And so what started to happen is, there's no doubt I'm not the technical lead, the technical expert on biotech, but I can understand the physics behind it. I can understand where it needs to go. So it's, it's a natural comfort for folks. You know, there's a lot of folks like me who worked in industry and did tech scouting. You know, a biotech person can move into the, to the physical side and back forward because we don't have to be the experts now. We know how to understand who the experts are. And then we can complement those experts with things that you know would be a waste of their time. And the last thing I'd want to do is have Ren not inventing the next new drug delivery mechanism and going out and talking to angel groups and trying to raise money. That would be the worst use of his talent. And so we could come in and provide the things that naturally benefit, form the teams, round out the operations, put business models in play. So I think the first thing that comes up is it's a natural fit. And it's, and it's not a stretch because we don't have to be the, you know, the pharmaceutical expert or the lead chemist or the lead physicist. That's already there. We need to take those people and help them understand how to run a business and get this to be a commercialization. No one cares about the technology. They care about their problems and how you can solve them. And we help people you know, bring those two things together. I think the other element is the impact biotech has. Now, I mean, in the simple nature, it can have an influence on every person and every country throughout the entire planet. And then, you know, it can move the needle on on, on suffering. And I know that's a holistic high-end stuff, but the point is, the biotech space, biopharma space is, is big and it can have a big effect on human life. And so that naturally draws us in and where we can help But you know, from selfish purposes too, let's face it, no one's perfectly idyllic. It has huge financial return. And then the third thing is it fits our financial investment thesis. So we wanna come into companies, we put in early checks that could have large multipliers several years later, we can follow on with checks that have quick returns, a beautiful IRR or ROI, however we wanna measure that? And bear paws through our investment with Keto, you know, 2018, there was a small check keto put in. That had a 12 times multiplier from 2018 to this summer when BeerPaws exited to um, Zoetis, because Paws works in the, the animal veterinary space. Zoetis is that vision of Pfizer. People are aware with that. But then we piled on a bigger check in December of last year. Well, that had a 40% return in six months. And so the biotech biopharma lets us play that playbook where. We could come in with early checks. Yes, they're risky. We defer and and de-risk that by being involved or having smart people who we can work with. And then ultimately, we get the high multiplier on the first checks, and then the follow-on checks have quick returns at hire uh, quick uh, ROIs that that have favorable um, uh, investment opportunities. And you know, early stage, we know what's going on with the company. We get to come into these rounds when you know. Knowing the history, knowing the opportunity, and getting ahead of the exits and helping bridge the company so they're financially strong as we negotiate acquisitions or or other exit opportunities. Um, We're finding out IPOs aren't all what they cracked up to be. (laughs) And so, you know, we try to to work to the the strategic partnership level in that regard. So, biotech, biopharma, medical device, you know, we could help make those products, you know, through injection molding. Well, you know, those are hardware-type devices. They really are when you think about it. And, and then when you get into the biotech and biopharma side, when you're looking at medical tools, well, those, those are instruments. They're, they're kind of like hardware. And then when you get into the chemistry side of it, the reagents and assays or the drug development, sure, that gets a little different. But when you look at an FDA regulatory pathway, it looks a lot like you know things that you have to have in PPAPs for automotive. Or, you know, when you're accredited to certain, you know, industry standards, it's just a lot more detailed and a lot longer time frame. And there's deep expertise and people who can run through FDA approvals. So it's not a stretch. It's a natural fit. We can help. There's big opportunities. And then, you know, it fits our investment thesis quite well.
0: It sounds like the way you describe uh, this model and there's a few pieces that I'll I'll bring up in shortly but it sounds like your time as being an entrepreneur has really helped you be an entrepreneur that the entrepreneur side of the way you analyzed and worked inside of the business building businesses and had that security mm-hmm. around you of uh, being able to find and solve problems internally has kind of allowed you to step outside your comfort zone and being able to work in this, Uh, biosciences space, as you said, it's not a far stretch. And it sounds like it's not a far stretch. It is a far stretch. It's not admitting it's a far stretch. And the reason why it's a far stretch is because it's a challenge for you, which means it's more (laughs) exciting for you to want to do it because you've already understood the basis of running companies, building companies, in and outside of the biosciences so now being able to take all of the the things that you've structured around the business it really emphasizes the fact that this is what gets you up in the morning because you're able to go in and make an impact but you're also able to see the change which is also the change in yourself by learning about a whole new industry which is pretty damn exciting <laughs> so i don't know if that's fair to say it that way but it kind of <laughs> sounds like that shaped nicely on how you've uh have grown to where you are today
1: no i think you nailed it You yeah so yeah, JP, yeah, I love challenges and that is what wakes me up. But, you know, at the end of the day, foundational structure really, really is a big difference of where you're going. So, yeah, when I was an entrepreneur in a big corporation, I used to drive the presidents of our organization nuts because I'm pushing things outside organizational structures that aren't necessarily good when you have 500 people working in operation and roles need to be defined and so I felt like a, a tiger trapped in a cage, and it was some of the you know my graybeards within Masco who st- I just had a conversation with, Mike Campbell who is a group president at Masco, phenomenal turnaround guy. Just he's my Muhammad on the Mount, right? So I go to him. He, everyone needs this. You need someone who could just you know you need a grandparent, right? You need a parent. You in entrepreneur stuff you need you need your graybeards, kind of just grounding you. And, and so these folks, when I was in Masco, basically helped me understand, I need to get out and form my own company. And, and when you're an entrepreneur, uh, you, know, you go out to the jungle, there's no safety net, but you have the freedom to create anything you want to create. And I, you know, the way I try to understand it, the folks is, we all have the same goals. Working within a corporation, you give up a little bit of your freedom for security. Working outside the organization, you give up your security for more freedom. But at the end of the day, we all want financial security with freedom. And so you move up the corporate ladder to do that, and you sacrifice some of the grief that comes with that. You you have to worry about paying your bills as an entrepreneur You want to move up to the point where, you know, you have financial strength. Everyone wants to be the Zuckerberg or, you know, the Bezos or something of that nature. I don't need to be a billionaire. But my point is people, it's all the same goal. And and, um, some people would say it that, you know, you don't live to work. You work so you can live. That's great when you work in a big company. From the entrepreneur standpoint, your work is your life. You're an artist. And, and that's kind of, I, I don't know if you're wired that way from birth or you're sparked that way or something drives you that way from opportunity standpoint, but entrepreneurs have grit and entrepreneurs want that freedom. They enjoy the creation. Their work becomes their art form. And yes, yeah, sometimes you're the poor struggling artist trying to make a life out of this, but um, but that's it. And and um, yeah, I, I don't think there's a stretch too much You know, when you look at foundational structures, when we product development started, it was chaos. We didn't even know to call it product development. It was called machine design or machine development. But you look at the organizational structures that exist across multiple industries. There's a product development function that has product marketing and product engineering. It's across the organization. There's cross-functional teams, purchasing, manufacturing. It's not thrown over the wall. Everyone just accepts that, takes it for granted. And the same things happen on with business development and early stage. And so, you know, you're you're seeing is the macro level of early stage formation, putting foundational structures in place. So folks, JP, like you and I, we could come in at the early stage and put foundational structures in that can either kill this thing, because it's no one wants it, there's no customer, or move it down the path and get it to the customer to solve their problems. And that's what's starting to happen with innovation campuses that can help, you know, bring these ideas together, fractional talent that could come in and then capital at the right stages, but give the capital they've earned and need, you know, you don't give everybody what they want, you give them what they need. And then you get them down the path, you know, what would have taken them two years, hopefully you can help them get done in two to four months. It's an acceleration model in that regard, a force multiplier. And that's what's happening in early stage. So folks can go into pharma who used to do hardware, right? And, and there's so many similarities. The differences are taken up by the technical talent and the unique things that go on with each of those individual enterprises.
0: I love it. And, and there's so many good things that you shared there that uh, really kind of line up the entrepreneurial journey. And, you know, I think the, the best one was you give up your security for freedom or you give up your freedom for security and you kind of have to pick which side of the fence you want to play on. Uh, there is some in between, I guess, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, but outside of that, there's not much uh, wiggle room. You're on one side of the fence or the other. And I think it's that's well shared. And, and I love the fact that entrepreneurs are an artist. So just like a, a musician or um, a painter, whatever it might be, Uh, those persons are going to struggle until they get to the craft and they get to be the best at it. And I think that that kind of really lines up to what you're saying is that regardless of how you start and where you start as an entrepreneur in this journey is that as you're working your way through this, you're going to become a better, sharper, quicker, faster, better artist. Um, And it's all of these people and it's the commercialization. It's all of these pieces around you that get brought in to really hone in on that skill that you've created or hone in on that product or, uh, the art that you've created that's going to really make it an exemplified forward to be something great.
1: No, you again, great insight. <laughs> <laughs> I often wonder, you know, how what you say, how it's perceived by others. But no, you nailed it. My gray beard, um, Mike Campbell. When I first started my first companies, it's frightening. It really is. You're, you know, you're you're taking the leap of faith. You're out in the jungle, and. It, you know, the show Naked and Afraid or the guy's out in the jungle. And you know, that's how you feel. But he helped me understand what you're saying about straddling the fence. It doesn't work. See, you know, it's all plan A. There is no plan B. Because if my mind has a shred of doubt about, oh, here's my fallback, plan A doesn't have a success. So you've got to drive persistently that it's all plan A. And you're going to make that thing work come hell or high water. Now, that doesn't mean you're stubborn. You pivot, you change, you listen to your customers. But plan A means I'm gonna launch this product, it's gonna make this margin, and I'm gonna find a way to make that happen. Oh, hey, attuned Biosciences. They started with a device that can go down the esophagus and then it would do post-operative thermal management. Brilliant idea and works. So you put something down the esophagus, you run water through it in a simple manner, And now it's going to help patients overcome post-operative surgery, sepsis, things of that nature. Customers weren't adopting it. What do you do? So they took this device, they started talking to more customers, and they kept hearing from cardiologists that when they do a procedure called cardioversion, which shocks the heart, oftentimes the esophagus is damaged. And they take images of the heart often through the esophagus. So they're used to putting things down your throat to look at the heart or They have to protect it when they're doing procedures. They pivoted to esophageal care. Fast forward, the company's on track to to sell $10 million in product this year. They raised $4 million in grants. They got a matching $4 million investment. They're cash flowing and reinvesting. And now the FDA has asked them to perform a two-year study because not only does it protect the esophagus, they believe it can actually improve the outcomes of atrial fibrillation and other arrhythmia. Because when you get these cardioversions, shock the heart, 30% of the patients are cured, but it comes back. 70% aren't. They think they can move the needle now. So that's what I mean about plan A. It doesn't mean you're stubborn. It means you're persistent. You got grit and you're going to find that customer. And it also means you have to tell yourself the truth when you need to walk away and move on to the next project.
0: I love it. And, and I think what you're defining right there is um, what I used to call, um, well, I'll, I'll say that it's the fifth gear. It, it's yeah. the Michael Jordans, the fifth gear that they're able to turn it on in the last second and win the match. But it's, it's being able to understand that, and this is what we want to invest in. We're looking for founders that have this fifth gear. They have the understanding that they need to communicate, that they need to dive into the product. You know, they can't sit outside and say, well, I don't know why it's not working. They're in and they're testing it with customers. They're really trying to peel back the layers and find out where the real problem is and figure out how they can solve it because they're just surface level if they don't do that. And if I think you're, you're proving right there that, the amount of time that a founder and the team really dive into the real problem of it and find where the real problem is and if they've got to pivot 12 times to really find that it's that they came in with a hypothesis and now they're getting down and granular to the real problem and that's what's going to define them as a business unit and a way to commercialize that in the future which it sounds like they're they're certainly working on and
1: and the other thing is everyone thinks this is you know going to happen overnight it doesn't I, I like Malcolm Gladwell's novels, The Tipping Point, and, you know, it, it, but he talks about mastery. You know, it takes 10,000 hours to reach a certain level and then another 10,000 hours and then another 10,000 hours. So that musician who's in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, which is a great orchestra, and is playing, you know, primary seat, lead chair of a violin, that just didn't happen overnight. And, you know, the other statement I love is, you know, oh, it took 10,000 days for that person to become an overnight success. So everyone sees the successes. We need to talk more about the struggles. And and it's the struggle that matters. The success is an outcome. It's a desired outcome. But you don't get to that and you don't appreciate it unless you put in the hard work to make it happen. And then that means you have to be passionate about what you do. You gotta love what you do. my, My dad would always say, find something you love to do and you never work a day in your life. The entrepreneur has to feel that. If this is too stressful, if you don't enjoy it, If it's all about the money, then um, then you're going to be miserable and you're probably going to be divorced (laughs) because if if your family isn't behind this, you know, yeah, there's one to two outcomes. Your business dies or your family has a significant alteration.
0: No, fair enough. And and that makes complete sense that uh, you'll be a little disgruntled if you can't find your positioning. So I think it's that focus, but it's also trying to figure out from the beginning what the real meat and potatoes is of what you're trying to build. And I think you talked a lot about um, the gray beards and commercialization. And, and I think a lot of these things um, and building models, I think a lot of this comes from taking the time to understand where you are today and where you need to be in a year or two years. And that's that planning part. But I think if you really draw back into the, the gray, gray beard side of it, um, and I'll, the gray beard analogy is just the, the person that has uh, the elders in the room, the people that have the experience and being able to bounce ideas off, but really opening yourself up to that uh, controversy, I guess, that we all think that everything is going to run this certain way. It's going to run perfect. And I'm great at what I do, even though it's my first time, is that I think we tend to forget that in this journey and just like your journey as an entrepreneur all the way through the companies you created, you always had people around you you've talked about lots of different names that you've mentioned from Mark, et cetera. All of these people um, were part of your journey. They were part of the fence that you were trying to climb over. They were the ones telling you you're doing the wrong thing or this doesn't make sense because you were open enough to share it or they were open enough to see where you were making your problems. And I think sometimes we shell ourselves off and maybe we forget that this is what's going to help us actually move faster. Uh, We do need naysayers in uh, in our program We need people that are punching us down to our our level every day, because if we don't, and it's just a smooth road, when we do get hit with that controversy or the big problem, we're not going to be able to get over the fence. Uh, Is that kind of, I think in your journey, did you have come across a lot of that with the people that you've mentioned uh, in our conversation that they were there, not there to support you, but they were there to punch you up a level, which is to get you where you need to be. And the only way you're going to get there is you had to have some hard learnings in that journey.
1: (laughs) absolutely j p absolutely, and I can, I can I can reinforce that a couple ways. The first is you know when Mike Campbell and I got together, yeah, <laughs> we looked at our first business plan, and you know he was kind enough to meet in person, and he said, "Look, um, you know I'm very direct, don't take it personally, don't be offended by it because I respect your time too much, and time is the only thing we don't get back and so Opens up the business plan, and much to my shock, he had it all marked up. He had actually read it in great detail. And he opens up the first page and he starts to say, What the F were you thinking? What are you doing? What do you and and, but by the time we were done, and he said, I have no other comments. Um, we we found a a, in energy efficient lighting where do you put lighting everywhere? That's a problem. But we found a market in gas stations where we can work electrical contractors who were also distributors because that was all about the pump. And so Oscar Larson services this area of the country. They represent one of the manufacturers of the pumps. Well, they grew the business around doing everything. So they installed all the lights. They're also the distributor for the lighting. And we had their sales force. We had a captive market where we could put a retrofit kit in that could go into existing fixtures. And if the customer didn't like it, they could remove it. I can go on and they have a rebate programs. They could literally get the paybacks within 10 months and have better lighting and lower energy costs. And, but without him walking me through that process, I didn't find that business model. You know, I would have, I would have not understood it. But the second thing that reinforces it is the classic buzzword customer discovery, right? The NSF, Lean Launchpad, Steve Blanc, you know, all, you know, uh, the the business model canvas by Alex and those guys. I'm a big skeptic when it comes to these programs. The, you know, we used to call it the bingo program, you know, bingo flavor of the month, and I hated all of that. So when I first was exposed to this, I went, "Yeah, here we go again." And then I realized, wait a second, that's that's fundamentally solid. It's the structure, a business model. We know your value proposition. Know your customer, and it's not revolutionary but you have to go out and talk to hundreds of people to figure out these models. And when we work with teams, before we invest in a company, we make sure that's done, that they understand their customer and their business model. But when we give feedback, we call it relentlessly direct. And so it's punching your way up kind of, we're not here to harm you, we're here to help you. Because everyone wants to have their grandparents and their mom and dad tell them how cute they are. When actually they're baby, baby, It'd be extremely ugly. Someone's got to tell them what's real. And customers will do that. Listening to customers, you know, seeking. You know, there used to be a program called Columbo. Date myself, but Columbo was a detective. He'd always say, why, why, why? One more question, one more question. And that's the idea. You've got to continue to probe. You've got to be willing to use these, your ears, and then listen with your eyes as well. The things they do, it's how they behave, it's what they don't say. And so, yeah, if you don't have that, you know, direct feedback, that punching upwards, you know, the naysayers, the curmudgeons, seek those people out, but make sure they're productive. They don't attack you; they attack the problem. They help you see things you can't see. Those are talented people in their own right. They tend to be very successful people who want to give back and are willing to work with great early stage entrepreneurs.
2: I love it. I love it. We're
0: gonna. I, I gotta ask one one big question because I think that to all the things that you've shared, they're they're all awesome and they really align up to the mindset of taking someone either from the corporate world, uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneur, and being able to really build up a business and then finding the right groups that can support you. And and I think that's really important. Is that there's a lot of groups out there that can help, but you have to do your homework on it just as much as you do when you're. Uh, investigating customers or a problem you're trying to solve um, when it comes to the process around bioscience. And again, this can be, we'll call it broad strokes or high level. Um, what, what are the steps that you typically find that these early stage bioscience companies need to go through um, and where, you know, you built wet labs, you've built a lot of process to help them, which I think is brilliant. What are the steps that you see that maybe if you look at the analogy, crawl, walk, run, If everybody knows what that analogy is, then things would move really easily because people would realize (laughs) that it's so much better that a baby can crawl before it walks. I I think there's a bit of a process here that we forget that these stages are Mm -hmm. built for a reason. So when it comes to the biosciences side, I'm sure people try to circumvent and get across and go quicker because they want to get to market faster. Is there a process where you're like, look here, this is the real way of doing this. That's going to get you through the markets a little bit quicker. And with your process and what you guys enabled is going to help with that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Let me, yes, is the simple answer. But again, it's case by case, but there's fundamental elements. I'll keep going back to that, that are true for a hardware cup metal bashing company, to a bioscience, new drug development. And if you go back to product development in the late eighties, nineties and how it evolved, you know, there was no process really, but now there's things people know as stage gate processing. And the thing is, you know, know there's five steps to your stage gate, focus on step one with the vision of step five. So that's the classic Steve Covey, you know, begin with the end in mind, you know, and then, you know, You've got to basically focus on the things that matter. So first things first is how Covey would say it. Begin with the end in mind. You know there's five stages. First things first, focus on phase one. Don't necessarily have to be doing things in stage four and five. Now, let's apply that to an early stage company and a biotech company. You know, again, there's you have to understand you need to get to phase three, let's say, drug development. You have to get to phase three clinicals, but you don't have to necessarily... Be working on phase three clinicals and making big size production runs, I mean, most people understand this, but the simpler way to say it is before you spend a lot of time making product, talk to customers, even in the biopharma space, you know, we're, we're seeing this in CAR T therapies and immuno and, and, and checkpoint inhibitors, great, great promise. Can it improve patient survival? We don't know yet. You know, how will it be administered in the hospital setting? What's going to be the ad- customer adoption curve? Where do you start? Now, because it's such a huge industry with great returns, there's it, you know there's all kinds of consulting groups that will help you find the right pharma partner, or help you find you know, the right regulatory pathway, or help guide you through from preclinical all the way to clinical. Or you know, are you a, a predicate device? Uh, a, a, a de novo or or what kind of five ten k are going to need to go through for you know medical devices because those markets are so big because they have such profitable margins because the profit returns can be high and there's risk associated there's all kinds of groups you can work with that way but be careful they're expensive so not everyone's a Silicon Valley West Coast enterprise who can get ten million and then you know spend million dollars on consulting fees. So you've got to choose people who, you know, you meet through networking and who are willing to, to be that, you know, evangelist, early adopter, angel, either as an investor or as an advisor. They're giving to you freely because they don't, their return is, is personally gratifying. And, and they see something in you that they're willing to support and, and help along. So, it, you know, it starts with what's, begin with the end in mind. Ah, got to get through phase three. First things first, how do I know I have a customer? How am I going to find the right talent that can help me think this through? What's the fractional talent I bring in? And and the only way you find that is you just go out and you start talking to folks. And you go to these incubators and accelerators and you network and you go to these events and it it takes off on its own. One person will introduce you to another. Um, When I started my first company, one of the guys I work with, was at the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. He heads an accelerator in downtown Detroit called TechTown. Uh, his name's Ned Stabler. And as I was leaving corporate America, he said, I would meet people, believe it or not, 6.37 in the morning to understand if I wanted to do this. And he said, every time you're thinking network, you got to be networking people, networking with people, networking with people. And so that's what you need to do at that very formative stage You just get out of the building. You need to talk to people. You need to find these people. Peptanovo, you know, here's Ren, his third startup. We've got all kinds of talent we already know. We're working with a University of Michigan team through one of, I think, one of the best programs Dave Brophy ran at U of M, where it was a practicum. And the MBAs and the BBAs come together and form a six-person team. And their final is to present and pitch the company to venture capitalists. And that's how they get graded. And so you, they have to go through a mini version of this. But even then with folks of us who've done it, we find Fred Brown, he becomes part of the, the Peptanova board. Fred introduces us to a guy from Roche. We talk to him, he introduces us to another guy from Roche. That guy then introduces us to a, a contract research organization who then introduces us to Glenn Meyer, who Glenn's now an investor, but he's also a 30 year veteran and he's running our whole product side. Ah, it gets better we need one particle, we need to find a better way to source it. He knows a guy in Italy, who's been in the business 30 years, who can make this semi-synthetically, which gets us much clearer path on the product side, new intellectual property, and helps put all kinds of things on the linker, one of the most critical elements. That's the power of networking, it never stops. Oh, that guy now in Italy, he knows a patent attorney, that patent attorney now knows, is the subject matter expert in this space and we're going to get better patent filings it's global look what happened in four or five conversations and we do this all the time i'm i'm never i cease to be amazed at the power of what it does so you got to start out by networking you got to start out by finding talent you got to build a team around you and you got to you know you got to be willing to say you know this this isn't going to work there's a lot of people who have cameras on intubation devices, or there's a lot of people who move in this space. I'm three years behind where the market is. How do? why do I win? You, you've, you, even though you got a great idea, the market may be ahead of you. The market may not adopt it. There may be no need for it. You know, don't look for a problem or solution finding a problem, look for a problem finding a solution. So you, you know, it's those, those graybeards around you will help you share those kind of messages. So yeah, there's a process. doesn't matter if it's biotech or not. Some are more defined than others. Starts with, you know, begin with the end of mind. Keep it simple. That's the other thing we, we didn't throw in there, but, but begin with the end of mind and first things first. First things first are talk to people, network, find out the things you don't know today, even though you think you know
0: them. Brilliant. I love it. I like the, the little addition there of keeping it simple, but I think it's also just making it, Uh, lean and clean and just figuring out how to approach things in a simple format, but just talk to everybody. And it's amazing. The more you talk to people, the more things you're going to learn about your business that you didn't even think were there, or your business will shift into what you're going to learn from talking to people because they'll give you uh, new ideas or areas where they felt there were bigger problems. And you might actually find that the hypothesis you came in with is gonna shift just from talking to 30 people and they'll po- probably pull out a gem <laughs> at the end of it. So uh, I love that network, network, network. Well, there's, there's one last. oh, sorry, go ahead, go well,
1: ahead. JP, to, to, to kind of add on what you're saying, it, when in product design, I knew we were successful when people would look at it and go, well, I could have done that. Simplicity in design is poetry. And so what you just said there resonates and stuff. And then on the customer discovery side, when we help run these programs, we'll work with you know, the universities here in Michigan. Matter of fact, Friday, we're launching a customer discovery program with the Western Michigan University School of Business and their innovation center. Sandra Cochran, great, great person there. She's so much energy. But when we start those programs, I say at the beginning, so look, there's no guarantees in life, but I will guarantee you this, and I've never been wrong. What you're thinking now in that hypothesis will not be what you're thinking after you talk to 30 people. It just doesn't. So to your point, you go out there and you learn more. You're going to pivot. You're going to shift. You're going to make it better. And it never ends. It's a journey.
0: <laughs> totally <laughs> so- is. It totally is. And, and, I, and I feel that just um, ourselves uh, going through that same process. You're always pitching. But I think when you pitch with conviction and you're listening, that's where you're going to get the best results at the end. Uh, and, and, you know, you can't say it more than uh, a thousand times a day, but to every founder, just pitch everywhere you can. Even if you don't want to pitch, just go pitch them. They might be saying, oh, let's just go for a coffee and chat about life. No, I'm going to pitch you. You always are <laughs> pitching. You always have to be on because that person may give a nugget that you didn't think about. And that's <laughs> going to change your world.
1: And we, we, when we start these programs, we have someone stand up cold and I say, tell me about your business. You got 30 seconds. Go. And then we go around the room and say, Does anyone understand what they're doing? And they have to do it three times to so most people can understand what they're doing. And I said, no, Okay, now you got 15 seconds. Now you got 10. By the time they're done, they do a better job in 10, 15 seconds getting everyone in the room to understand. So, to your point, you got to be ready to pitch too. And you're not selling, you're, 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 you're discovering. You, and, and sometimes you may get lucky and find someone to, who you made a sale.
0: You're not selling, you're discovering. I like that. It's so true. Well, it sounds like, uh, Steve, we could talk forever. I'm not going to lie. It's been a great conversation. (laughs) And we do have some other segments we've got to jump into. But I want to ask one last question, just because, of again, of your background and the things that you've done. Uh, And I love all of the things that you've kind of shared around your journey. But the one thing is, from the patents and the products that you've created, uh, from Palm all the way through and all these great things that you've been part of how much of the university college experience is still shaping today's world and in innovation? Is it still happening? Is it a big player? Is it really morphed its way out of this space? There's been a lot of talk about, you know, just go out and build it. You don't need university. You don't need college. This isn't going to do anything for you. How much of, and maybe not just the biosciences, but all sciences, all of, uh, we'll call it any product that comes out to market. Is innovation still happening at the university level? And is it still just as valuable today as it was 20, 30 years ago, or is the innovations, uh, kind of jumped into places like yours, what you're building. Is that more of where innovation's happening? And I know it's a hard hitting question, but for me, it's, you know, is there a world for all of it and where does it really start?
1: So probably folks are used to the term technology readiness level where it's translational research, not basic research. So we are very fortunate to live in North America. McMaster University, I respect that university immensely, McGill, and of course I live in, I think, one of the best universities, research institutes in the nation at University of Michigan. You know, Stanford and Michigan are number always like number one and two in research dollars. Michigan just got $1.6 billion in research across its pl- programs. So the simple answer is yes, there's tremendous innovation going on at the universities. It's going on at Western Michigan. It's going on at Michigan Tech. It, it goes on even at Eastern Michigan, which isn't even a research institute, because you bring in the right elements. Now, how the university boards reagents and how the presidents and how the leadership goes there, you know, obviously big organizations and they have their own structures and academic purposes, you know, they, they have to service other missions as well. And so it's important that tech transfer offices within universities can bridge that, that mission of academic purpose. And then how do we work outside the university? When I first started working with universities in the late nineties, it was a joke. We'd come in there and they'd say, yeah, give us hundred thousand dollars. We'll hire a postdoc and we'll give you a paper. And oh, no, no, don't. We don't want to just, you know, we feel we, the university, shouldn't be helping businesses because, you know, that's like, we're, we're, we're sending out this intellectual property that that's, you know, it's a conflict of interest. Fast forward, that doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, it really started to break loose in 2008, nine and 10. And now you've got these, you know, universities, Harvard, MIT, U of M, they've got innovation campuses and they're starting to understand that basic research has a genuine purpose. Translational research is where the innovation starts to become potentially commercialized. And at stage one and two of the technology readiness level, it needs to be inside the university. Michigan State, I think has come up with a really great way of doing this. Spartan Innovations through you know, its foundation, funds, you know, a group of people to work inside the university as entrepreneurs in residence or CEOs in residence to find out if there's a there there. And they'll give them a little bit money to go down the path until they can find other money, grants, investors, strategic partners, and licenses, maybe. And then, of course, that has to move to another level of get outside the university. And that's what we bridge. When they you got to get outside the university to be successful as a commercial entity. And so let's not confuse the innovation that can naturally occur in all of these brilliant universities with commercialization of no one cares about your technology, they care about their problem. Give NSF a lot of credit through their I-Corps program, and now what they've expanded across the nation with hubs that used to be nodes that, you know, then became sites and, Now all of these universities are starting to understand the fundamental practices, the best practices of, is this innovation? Is it worth time? How do we get it outside the university? So yes, the universities have great innovation. Some of them actually can be commercialized. (laughs) Um, But it all depends on the culture of the university, how easy they are to work with, and then how committed are they of not just writing papers and, and not just trying to find a way to get student revenue, which is very important. But how does this complement their academic mission? Because it's not a conflict. It's funding we give publicly to universities. Wouldn't it be great that the innovation there can actually come out and that funding could have a return of its own? That's what I think the innovation role is within the university. And you're finding alumni, you know, creating funds that'll follow on and talent that will come in and follow it and business models that are, you know, being developed that can service, you know, humanity and a, and a, and a larger prospect. And I said, I love it.
0: I thought you would like it that way. Yeah, no, this is good. And I, I think we'll we'll end that segment with stay in school kids. There's a lot of innovation and learning you're going to get from university and college. Even if you're only in there for a year or two, you're going to find your way around. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur, then you're going to jump the fence and you're going to start building and look for uh, like-minded uh, businesses like yours where you're, you're building a massive ecosystem that can help float and really take them uh, into the stages that they need to go. So that's uh, it's pretty exciting.
1: Some of the best university startups were students who worked within that innovation postdocs that followed it and informed the company when it came out. There's, you know, I, I would, I would eat my left arm to have available what students have today when I started in the eighties or my wife, you know, she started, a, you know, she's got a PhD. She did a postdoc. She spun out a company with her advisor. They, they failed because they didn't understand their customer. And I I kind of go back a step. It's important to say this, Jeff. You know, your family has to be behind this. When we decided to create our own companies, it was our companies, not just my company. My wife's dad started a company. Her grandfather started a company. She said she was allergic to corporate America. You know, and so you've got to have people supporting you at all levels. And it's because of my family, my wife, who's also part of what we do now, we never anticipated that to happen. Um, yeah, you've got to have that. And think, she was a student. She was a doctoral candidate. She did follow her company. The support that exists now for students wasn't like it was in 2004, wasn't like it was in 1987, to 88, or 1995. It's, it's, it's so, so encouraging for entrepreneurs that go to college. You can find your company and the university would love to see you jump in and run
0: it well said totally agree with that all right we're going to quickly move into uh the segment where we share a quick kind of story around what it takes to be an entrepreneur and i think throughout our chat you've certainly shared a lot of what it takes to be an entrepreneur maybe you have one that resonates with you um Kind of back of mind or something you've been through or a startup that you've worked with where she or he you know really uh, you didn't think was going to make it and they turned it around and, and made it successful or not but there there's always that story that kind of invigorates all of us to say you know this is what it takes to be an entrepreneur maybe you have something top of mind you can share
1: oh my there's so many of them i mean the, the quickest one that comes to mind i i only worked with this company in passing they were at a local incubator here in Ann Arbor called Spark. I think it's one of the best incubators in the Midwest. And her name was Lisa McLaughlin, and she started something called Work It Health. And I thought, what the heck is she doing? I saw her at this pitch, and, and it was all about, you know, she, you know, she personally had experienced, not herself, but friends' addiction and social counseling. And I thought, there's no business model there. Give me a break. You know, and and she talked about how it was difficult for people to get the social work care that they needed. And she was just adamant about what she believed, persistent, dogged. There's been studies about this over and over and over. And there's just a recent study done by this consulting group on the West Coast. They said, what does it take to be a successful company, a successful entrepreneur, a successful early stage? What do those founders have? They looked at all kinds of categories, intelligence, funding, university background, you name it. And what always came up, regardless of the industry, regardless of the success story, regardless of the path and and the funding they had, was grit. Grit, you know, persistence, doggedness, willing to, to, to make it happen, but not grit with a confirmation bias, grit with a willingness to learn. And and that was their, their novel spin that, yeah, you had to have all that, but you've had to be willing to listen. And that's what Lisa had. Now, she started this company. She went to the Accelerate Michigan Innovation Competition. She started getting recognized. She won some awards. She started some, putting some people together. And now she's had the network, the community, helping her where um, other groups came in. Uh, and, and they just closed a $20 million raise or some ridiculous thing like that. They got three or four venture groups behind them. They got a national presence. I don't. I can't keep track of them anymore. I think they've hired 400, 500 people, and they've changed the care for addiction because think of telehealth. She was ahead of that. I give her credit. I kind of saw what was happening in telehealth. Maybe she did too, but we all stumbled into it. And she's got a telehealth platform with a national group of social workers who could be contacted And it's a community environment where these people can work together in group checks and blogs and support networks. And and then, you know, it's a national thing and it's highly profitable because it costs insurance companies less. And yet people can make their market rate and they can get the margins they need being that aggregator. Hey, I've got patients. I got social workers. I'm going to introduce the national network of each to the other on a platform that makes them easier to get their job done. Uh, it's uh, it's yeah, she she was impressive. Um, I could go on and on, though.
0: <laughs> no, that's a That's a great share. And, and, I, and I think it really, like you said, in throughout the chat, the grit, that fifth gear really makes a difference in an entrepreneur. But I think the biggest one inside that grit and you said it was that they're willing to learn and listen. And that's what's going to help them keep changing and growing and also bringing other people in. In their journey, they're going to start to really layer in more people that are going to support them because they start to understand the vision and the direction they're taking. And she's proving that by solving a larger problem and, and saving money, but making money for others. So I think overall, it's a, it's a great story and it really defines what perseverance and grit takes to uh, to run a company. So uh, kudos to her and amazing to hear the great things that she's doing.
1: Yeah, Work It Health is the name of the company. Check them out. Uh, I th- Love it. I haven't haven't checked them out in several months, so hopefully things are still going well.
0: (laughs) I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. (laughs) Um, All right. We're going to pivot quickly into our rapid fire questions. The way this works is you as the investor will pick one or the other. So uh, what is more favorable to you and to how you invest? And then we'll jump into the personal questions. Are you ready to roll? Yes. All right.
2: First question, founder or co-founder? Uh, founder unicorn or a four year 10x exit
1: four year 10 exit by far tech or cpg
2: Uh, we're tech people nfts or web Uh, 3.0 probably web 3.0 ai or blockchain ai all the way
0: first time founder or second third time founder Wow.
1: Second and third, but we'll help the first. That's not fair.
2: <laughs> first money in or Series A?
1: We're always with the first money in, but we'll come in Series A afterwards.
2: Angel or VC?
1: We, we are angel group investors, investor groups that get it ready for the VC. So angel early, early investor groups.
2: Okay. Board seat or observer?
1: Uh, board when we run the companies, observer when they just need a little of our help. Safe or convertible note?
2: Safe to start, best instrument. Lead or follow? We'll lead early, we'll follow late. Equity or interest payments? Equity, equity, equity. I formed my first company on debt, it doesn't work. Favorite part of investing? The people. Number of companies invested per year? Uh, per year, about six
1: over the life of an investment thesis, uh, fifteen to twenty.
2: Preferred any preferred terms? Uh, yes,
1: you need to um, <laughs> be careful convertible notes and, and what boilerplates you get. That's why the is better. Keep it simple. Keep it simple.
2: Keep it simple.
1: Early vertical inv- have the preference of later investors.
2: Agreed. Vertical is a focus say it again verticals of focus
1: wow so we're tech agnostic we get pulled into healthcare as you've heard uh, but we're seeing emerging technologies and ai uh, pattern computers and a good example that if you look at that
0: okay two qualities a startup needs in order to stand out to you
1: they need to know their customer and they need to be honest on their due
2: diligence Love it. All right, we're gonna do uh, the personal questions. Book or movie. Oh, movie. <laughs> I'm lazy.
0: Superman or Batman?
1: Whole book front to cover, unless it's C.S. Lewis or something. I'm the I need I read, yeah,
0: movie. <laughs> all right,
2: all right. All
0: right, Superman or Batman. Oh uh,
1: yeah,
2: Superman. Restaurant or picnic. Picnic. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oh, wow. Oprah, I guess. Mountain or beach? Oh, mountain. Bike or run?
1: Uh, Yeah. What day is it? Uh, Bike, probably.
2: Big Mac or Chick McNuggets? Big Mac. Trophy or money? Uh, Money. (laughs) Beer or wine? Beer. Although I'm a wine snob uh camera or mobile phone uh mobile phone uh king or rich rich uh, concert or amusement park oh i like concerts yeah me too
0: uh fortune cookie or birthday cake
1: <laughs> that's a good one uh, i'll go with fortune cookie i always want to know what's coming
2: <laughs> ted talk or book reading uh, TED Talks. TikTok or Instagram? TikTok. My Facebook? AD. Facebook or, Inst- or LinkedIn? LinkedIn all the way. I don't have a Facebook account. I don't think I ever will.
0: I love it. My team runs ours, so I don't really pay attention. Well, companies do, do.
2: I mean, individuals
0: yeah. yeah. Most famous person that pops in your mind.
2: Oh, wow. Um, so Churchill
1: did, you know, some great things. Einstein did some great things. C.S. Lewis. Um, wow, I can go on and on and on. And those are the quick ones that come this morning. Those that come to mind. Tomorrow, ask me a question. I'll probably have two or three different people. You know, Einstein was a simple, that's what was genius about him. And then C.S. Lewis could take fundamental truths and make them work. Um. And then of course, you know, Churchill is dogged in his determination,
2: but he was also a funny guy, very funny guy.
0: Yeah, he had quite the
2: personality. Favorite movie and character you would play? Wow. (laughs) Uh, I don't know that one. Well, I guess
1: uh, the sting and I would be Robert Redford.
0: The sting. I have to look that one up. It sounds That's, familiar. I it's think Paul Newman,
1: it. Paul Newman, and Robert Redford. They're shysters, and uh, they go back and get you know the kingpin, and they set him up on a sting. But the whole movie is a sting to the audience as well. It's a great JP. You just go and get the movie and watch it. It's awesome. You probably heard the the theme music. I'm not going to try it. Anyway, that it's. Every aspect of that movie is is really cool. And as an entrepreneur, it keeps you on your feet all the
0: time. I love it. I'm going to look that one up. For some reason, I think I've seen it. I love both of those guys. They're like one of my favorite flicks is uh, um, the Sundance Kid. So yes. they're both in it, right? So the great movie and uh, I, anything with those guys have been great. So that yeah, great, great choice. Um, well, then favorite you know, book. of course. I'm sorry, say it again. Favorite book.
1: The Phenomenon Man, believe it or not. I, I actually read that from the cover every now and then. Yeah. So it's it's really thought-provoking.
0: Phenomenon Man. Favorite All right. Books. I have heard that one. <laughs> I like it. All right. Um, we're almost there. First
2: brand that pops in your mind. Coca-Cola. Favorite sports team. Chicago Bears
1: or Chicago Cubs, depending what season it is. Not to be outdone by the University of Michigan football team.
0: All right, the Bears, the Bears.
2: All right, what is the meaning of success to you? Uh, Fulfillment, Um, you know, meeting your ultimate challenge. I love it. Last question, what is your superpower? Networking, collaborating. Well, I'm going to
0: say that I will agree with all of these answers are, are fantastic. The conversation was brilliant. I think there was a lot we learned today. And Steve, I want to take a moment and say thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we probably um, could have made this into two more segments and continue talking and diving into so much in the startup world and all the great things that you've, uh, you've done to date. But I do want to say is, again, thank you. It's been awesome. And the way we kind of like to end things up is we want to give you the last word. Anything that you want to say or share to the entrepreneurs or to investors, we turn it over to you. But again, thank you very much for sharing so much today.
1: Yeah, thanks, JP. I I don't do this type of thing a lot, but I really like your approach. And when you explained this to me, I said, all right, I'll do it. You won't see a lot of blogs from me. You won't see a lot of podcasts. And, uh, you know, I just, a lot of times I, I, I just, yeah, I, I get shamed into doing it more than anything. So I, I really appreciate it. I think what you guys have done in the structure of this is worthwhile. and that, So I really enjoyed this. But um, I guess the parting thoughts for entrepreneurs would be, you know, enjoy what you do and stick with it, but be willing to be told and listen to, your dream may not be reality and that means you got to pivot and 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 that tends to happen more times than not i mean you got to be a failure unfortunately sometimes to succeed Uh, my first company failed my second company failed you know but they weren't they weren't you know (laughs) i thought we were going to go into bankruptcy a couple of times ask people who are successful everywhere along their journey of a company cash flow meeting payroll Something you know, it's just it's not easy, but it can be extremely fulfilling, and and so you know just just stick with it. Be willing to to think on your feet, pivot, uh, persist. Don't don't think you're going to get rich overnight, but you can be very financially secure. Absolutely, that's the goal. Freedom with financial security.
0: <laughs> I love it. Steve, amazing. Thank you very much.
1: All right, JP. Hey, thank you. Thanks for inviting me again.
0: Perfect. So there was a lot of great things that we just chatted about with Steve and everything from University of Michigan days all the way up until uh, today and and, um, kind of what they've been building around the startup ecosystem uh, in Michigan and working with Michigan University. So much great stuff. Um, You know, I think there's a couple of things that really kind of, encompass the talk. And I think a lot of them go from, you know, in order for you to commercialize your business, you really need to build models, work with the graybeards, uh, which are going to be the experts and pitch, pitch, pivot, learn, pitch again, do everything you can to get into the space and learn what's going on in the market so that you can keep pivoting and changing and getting to that key product. Uh, You're always selling. So you need to be learning and understanding what your model is and what you're really trying to, to get out. Uh, de-risk yourself as much as you can. And the biggest one that he emphasized quite a bit was talk to customers, learn what your customers are really looking for so that you don't fail because you're being too stubborn on what your solution is and really talk to customers. That'll help you really build this forward. Um, and then of course, you know, find the right talent, jump in, pitch everywhere you can and keep it simple, keep it clean. But overall, fantastic conversation, um, and you can see that there is so much uh, detail and everything that goes into to being an entrepreneur and, and you know, a couple of uh, key words that he talked about, which are grit and persistence, willing to learn. Man, so many great little pieces there, but um, I, I think we all uh, got a lot of great things that uh, take outs from that, so... Thank you again for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. Feel free to share an audio or video clip around the show. We may include it in one of our future podcasts. Find us at marketing at openpeoplenetwork.com. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit openpeoplenetwork.com. Thank you
2: and have a fantastic day.